listening to the ACB Advocacy Update. Welcome back, everyone. This is part two of our collaboration with the American Council of the Blind and discussing the history of accessible currency. I'm Liz Botner. I'm Swapananda Kumar. I'm Chris Peterson. I'm Mo Carpenter. And I'm Dan Spoon. And if this is the first episode you are listening to, I highly encourage you to listen to the previous episode, which gave the backstory on the previous advocacy efforts of accessible currency. And so that will get you up to speed to the point at which we will then begin discussing things on today's episode. And diving right in, tell us about the current state of advocacy efforts around accessible currency and including in that any organizations which have possibly signed on to assist ACB in helping with that effort. I could start and then Dan can jump in on this. So back in March of 23, we had a accessible currency rally in front of Treasury Building. This kind of kind of like had this rally um with Dan and Liz and Mo, everyone at ACB um that again on um, just like calling on BP and Treasury to fulfill their promises in the White House to fulfill their fulfill their promises to make currency accessible and at the rally in addition to ACB we had American Foundation blind. Um we also had the Disability and Defense Fund, National Disability Rights Network, Washington Lawyers Committee, and um had partners from the Women on Twenties movement and the American section um groups uh, groups. This was kind of spurred on their involvement in the current rally was spurred on by the um the announcement by the White House to include Harriet Tubman on twenty dollar bill and replace Andrew Jackson, which having that you know, change um will trigger the BP and Treasury to add features onto the bills because the case kind of hinged on the redesign, uh, upon the redesign of currency to add accessible features. And Dan as well. Back in um, March as well, we had um, a meeting with the Treasury Department and the Bureau of Printing, like Dan, me, Clark, and Eric Bridges, and um, Jeff Levicki were there. You know, Eric as our executive director and Clark as our advocacy general director, we were all there too. Um, and it showed us the that's that's the current thing what what they're gonna looking at as as redesign. Dan, you want to kind of speak a bit more? Yes, thank you, Swatha. It truly was a collaborative effort. I think it was really important. It was not just an accessible currency rally, but it was an accessible and inclusive currency rally. And as Swatha said, it was wonderful to have the support from Barbara Howard and Women on the 20, as well as our other consumer groups in the blind and low vision field. We had, even though they could not participate in person, uh, we had the support of Don Overton and the Blinded Veterans Association, as well as Mark Riccobono and the National Federation uh, of the Blind. So it was great to see kind of everybody come together and really support uh, accessible currency and inclusive currency. And 
and the rally itself was quite an experience to uh, you know have a hundred plus people there in the rain on a stage right there at Lafayette Square across from the White House and the U.S. Treasury Building. I have to tell you, uh, Liz and Chris and Mo, it was the first time I've ever actually participated in a protest rally for something like this. So it was exciting. And and just the announcement and the preparation for the rally and some of the work that Swathananda Kumar did reaching out to the White House led to us having a meeting with the Bureau of Engraving and Printing, as well as the U.S. Treasury prior to the rally. So we went really direct from this meeting with BEP to the rally and just walked from the Treasury building across the street and onto the stage to do the rally. So it truly was really uh, an exciting day. And for for the small group of us there representing the American Council of the Blind, for the first time, we actually got to feel the new $10 bill with the raised tactile features and the large uh, print uh, contrast on the back side. And that was uh, a pretty exciting moment, I got to tell you, as a blind guy, uh, to actually feel U.S. currency that's going to go into production in three short years with the approved raised tactile features that have been signed off. So that that was pretty exciting. It doesn't mean we're there yet. There's still a lot of work to be done, uh, but it was a wonderful day. It was great to see the collaboration, the, the social media, the outreach that took place. Our inclusive efforts uh, led to a conversation with Secretary Minerva, who is the actual treasurer of the United States. It's her signature that appears on the currency. She is responsible, along with the Secretary of the Treasury, for oversight of the Bureau of Engraving and Printing and the Federal Reserve. And so we were able through the rally to have a follow-on meeting with Secretary Minerva, with Barbara Howard from Women on the 20, and some of our colleagues from the Native American Indigenous Peoples Coalition to talk about accessible currency and inclusive currency. And it was exciting in that meeting as we went around and did introductions and Barbara was talking about the history of women on the 20 and we were introducing some of the colleagues from the Native American perspective that she actually stopped the conversation after about 10 or 12 minutes and said, Dan Spoon, I understand you're the president. At that point in time, I was the president, not quite yet the interim executive director of the American Council of Light. Did you attend the meeting at the Department of Treasury with BEP when you met with Director Leonard Oliard and talked about accessible currency? And I said, I did, Madam Secretary. And it was very insightful to me to see the amount of conversation that is going on inside of the Department of Treasury and the Bureau of Engraving and Printing about accessible currency. So I believe we do have the attention of the leaders that will truly make a difference and bring accessible currency hopefully to reality here in 2026. Let's take a step back 
both for those who maybe are listening to part two and haven't heard part one, but also mm-hmm. just to, to highlight this, because I think it's so important. This effort's been going on for 51 years. It can feel to many of us like there has been very little progress made at all. So can we just talk through what progress have we made? Where are we at now today? How much has been done? Sure. Well, I think the way the Bureau, and I'm learning every day, Chris, about the the, the workings of the Bureau of Engraving and Printing as is Swatha and, and many of our, our, our leaders inside of the American Council of the Blind. What had happened here with the release of the $100 bill back in, oh, I think it originally was supposed to go live in 2008. It might have got delayed till 2010. But when that currency came live, it, it was the first bill. And by the way, the Bureau of Engraving and Printing got an exemption from the lawsuit to not have to make the $100 bill accessible with a raised tactile feature. But when it came live, it had that first kind of thread that went through it for counterfeit measures. It was kind of this new level of enhanced counterfeit detection. And when that currency went live, they ran into all kinds of production issues that when you're actually in the Bureau of Engraving and Printing and you see their processes, they create skids of these bills, which are packets of 400 bills. It's 40 packets of bundles of bills, right? So at the end of the day, there's like, 640,000 of these bills that are on one pallet and it weighs tons. It's, if you can imagine that size of paper just stacked on top of each other. And what they found is when they stacked their $100 bills, this would have been a unique situation, they were actually tumbling over and falling on their employees because they were off balance. So they realized they had a significant design flaw that they had to kind of work through. And as part of all that, they were having challenges with counterfeiting. And so they put a whole organization together that consists of representatives from the Bureau of Engraving and Printing, the Federal Reserve, the Secret Service, the Department of Justice. They're all involved in different aspects of tracking counterfeit currency. And what you have to realize is that the U.S., treasury notes are truly the currency of the world. So there are literally trillions of bills in circulation all around the world for for U.S. currency. And so in, in, in 30 countries, the only currency outside of the United States, 30 international currencies do all their business exclusively in U.S. dollars. They don't even have their own currency. They use U.S. dollars. And so it's really important to get the counterfeiting right. And so what this caused them to do was really take about an eight to 10 year pause where they developed a whole new counterfeit currency prototype and profile. And that work is what delayed the bills going live from 2020 to 2026. But that work has been done and the official counterfeit prototype for this next family of U.S. bills, which will be the 10 and 26, followed by the 50 and 28, the 20 
in 30, 2030 and the five in 2032, all will have this same set of counterfeit protocols that have been approved. They've been submitted uh, by the agency that develops the counterfeit protocols. And in January of this year, those protocols were approved and signed off by Secretary Yellen, uh, the Secretary of, of the Treasury. And so this was a huge step forward to say that we've now gotten past the hurdle of counterfeit protocols. That was one of the major stumbling blocks. And the second was really signing off on the approach for the raised tactile features. That design work was being done at the same time by the Bureau of Engraving and Printing. And that was signed off through the design phase has been totally signed off by the Bureau of Engraving and Printing. So we now have the counterfeit protocols in place. We have the raised tactile feature in place and it's all done in a way with offsets throughout the bill that allow it to be balanced as it's stacked and, and, and made you know, ready through their huge mass manufacturing processes. So now through those processes, and we can take a pause and, and talk a little bit more about that, but we've now learned the whole next set of phases that the Bureau of Engraving and Printing have to go through to get to production by fourth quarter of 2026. Before we talk about what's next, do you happen to know when these currencies go into circulation, how long does it take for existing currency to get taken out of circulation and for us to start seeing these kind of become ubiquitous? The time for a bill to move into full circulation, and when they say full circulation, you can't control somebody who has $10 bills in their mattress or in their piggy bank and never pulls them out, right? But in general, it takes five years. And so the Bureau of Engraving and Printing gets their money ready to go into in substantial quantities to do a new introduction of the currency by the Federal Reserve. But it's truly the Federal Reserve with the Federal Reserve banks that implements the currency into the system. But it normally takes five years for a particular currency to go from the first time it's uh, introduced into circulation to be pretty much, you know, 95 plus percent replaced. So as bills come back into the banks, they get traded out and replaced with the new style currency. So it takes about five years. I know you mentioned that they decided not to do the $100 bill. Do you know the reason for that? Well, they were already, uh, you know, I guess at this point, far enough past their counterfeit design that they did not want to have to go back and, and redesign the 100. And they wanted to get it out there because they were experiencing a higher than normal amount of counterfeit activity that was happening around the 100. As you can imagine, in some levels of illicit type of transactions, the $100 bill is kind of the primary bill of choice. So it was really driven by a need to get better counterfeit surveillance in place. Well, you've talked about the previous and current advocacy efforts around accessible currency. What is next for the advocacy efforts in this area? How do we make sure that the progress we have made does not go away? Thanks, Liz. I, I really think this is the stage that we're at right now. And it's it's vigilance and it's constant, you know, um, 
intentional conversations with the Bureau Engraving and Printing. Right now, one thing we got is that we would have quarterly meetings where we would discuss the major milestones uh, for the implementation of the $10 bill and then and then subsequent bills, and that we would kind of get an update in person from them each time we kind of hit a, a major milestone. So he followed through on his word, and we had our first meeting with the Bureau of Engraving and Printing in June, June 8th to be precise, of this year. And at that point in time, we not only had uh, Deputy Oliard there, but as well as we had their chief counsel, had their book, we had their communications director, Teresa Dean Fines was there, as well as their two bureau deputy directors. And we really talked through those major milestones to get us to production by the end of 2026. And right now, the first of those milestones they're working to complete is really all the requirements around the counterfeit protocol. So these 420 requirements that they have to meet. And I learned a lot here over the last six months on really how currency treasury notes are produced. And it's really in a mass production process, as you can imagine, a whole series of machines looks like a manufacturing plant. And instead of manufacturing widgets, they're manufacturing bills, you know, $1 bills, $10 bills, $100 bills. And uh, these pallets, when they're produced, are truly, they're 640,000 bills on one of these pallets. They're really amazingly strong and heavy. And so it's, it truly is a manufacturing process. And these bills have three layers of printing and embossing with specialized ink uh, that go through these different steps of printing. And, and it takes a while. You'll, you'll go through the first step and then it'll cure uh, and uh, be sealed. And that'll take three or four days to dry. And there's a whole process they go through where they the ink can dry without smearing and all this kind of, you know, uh, manufacturing uh, protocols. As they get through all of that process, then they, as they layer this in, that is what really builds the counterfeit analytics and electronic verification that this is truly an authentic U.S. Treasury note. So once they've gone through those, so they're, they're right now at their third batch of printing for this final test of the requirements for the counterfeit protocols. Their, their belief is this hopefully will be their last small batch of testing. So once they kind of get through that phase, which they hope will be uh, in the September, October timeframe, ACB will be back having another meeting with them uh, to see about their progress. Then they have to go through their next milestone test, which is called a TIQ, which is a technical inspection and quality test. And in this particular milestone, what they're really testing is not the bills themselves, but how well the manufacturing equipment uh, is working to detect anomalies. So if something, if there's not enough ink, if they get off center, if what any of those type of things happen, 
then the system has to notify them that they have an issue so they can stop the machines, fix the, you know, the anomaly, the bug, the problem, and then start the manufacturing process up again. So they have to test their quality testing, technical quality test uh, capabilities. And that takes about six months to verify that. That's more of a software test to make sure the detection's going properly. Being somebody who grew up here in central Florida and, uh, you know, worked and my family members and many of my friends worked at NASA, when you're launching rockets, a lot of times it's not the part that fails, but the testing piece of hardware that fails. Uh, and so all of it has to be working, not only the, the manufacturing itself, but the testing of the, of the equipment has to work as well. So once they get through that phase, they're then ready to do their third milestone phase, which is really doing a large batch run. So now it's worked in small batches. The equipment is testing properly. Now they really have to run the machines through their paces and make sure they can manufacture at full speed for full batch runs. And really they're stress testing the equipment at that point in time. Once it passed that test, they're ready to go. Their bills are, are behaving properly. The counterfeit protocols are, are being adhered to. The testing is being done properly and their equipment is handling mass production load. At this point in time, they now create hundreds of thousands of bills, which they have to give to the bank manufacturing industry. So you know, what they call BEMs or bank equipment manufacturers. So there's about eight or nine major bank manufacturers, which produce about 80 to 90% of all the banking equipment around the world that's used, whether it be ATMs, uh, major money, currency money sorting devices, Think about all of the vending machines that now use paper currency, checkout lines for automatic checkout at grocery stores. I mean, there are so many pieces of equipment that now have to read this new accessible currency with a raised tactile feature. So the banking industry needs about 18 months to test all of their banking equipment and make sure they've made the right of adjustments to be able to handle the new $10 bill with the raised tactile features and the new counterfeit protocols, which are being implemented for the first time. So once the banking industry kind of gives their go ahead that their equipment is good to go, you're now ready to move into what they would call their final batch run, which is creating enough currency to answer Chris's question earlier, to be able to implement, you know, approximately 20% of the bills you're going to need when you're fully implemented, that those are ready to go into circulation. And they give the go ahead to the Federal Reserve that says your money, your new bill, your new note is ready to go. And it's now the Federal Reserve Board that makes the decision to implement the new currency through the federal banking system. At that same time, a year ahead of that, the Federal Reserve has to be planning for the launch of the new currency because they've got to communicate the fact that this new currency is coming into production and let the, the public, the worldwide public, know that now there'll be a new $10 bill with a raised tactile feature. It looks 
different than U.S. currency has looked in the past and making sure that the public understands and is ready to accept the new bill. So once that final step has been passed, then the Federal Reserve will give its approval, right now scheduled for the fourth quarter of 2026, to move the $10 bill into circulation. So those are the five, what I call the kind of the five major steps that we've got to pass in order to move forward. And we've already passed two major steps, as I said, which was the approval of the counterfeit protocol and the approve of the design for the raised tactile feature. So it looks like hopefully by this fall, we'll pass the next phase, which is the small batch test. So the counterfeit protocols working properly. Then we move into those next two phases. I would say the biggest risk that Jeff Levicki, our attorney, brings to our attention, and this is where the lawsuit is so important because it does not allow the Bureau of Engraving and Printing to release a new bill without it having a raised tactile feature. Will there be pushback from the banking equipment manufacturing industry? Will they say, well, we haven't had enough time to test our equipment or we're not so sure we want to move forward? They've done a lot of work. The banking equipment manufacturing industry is aware that this is coming. And it is the new family of bills that the Bureau of Engraving and Printing has based their design on that will roll out over the next eight years. So their counterfeit protocols are built in to this whole functionality with the raised tactile features that will be rolled out. So it's all kind of, it's a package. It's hard for part of it to go without all of it going. So that's what gives us hope. But I think a really strong amount of encouragement and hope, but we have to be diligent. You know, politics will be politics. We don't know where the next uh, challenge will come from. So we have to stay attentive. We have to stay engaged and we need to continue to meet on a regular basis with the Bureau of Engraving and Printing and making sure they're, they're hitting their milestones as we move along. Are there any details that we didn't know to ask about? And how can people get involved if they haven't been involved already and and would like to be involved at this point? Well, I think we learn new details every time we meet BEP leadership. It, It was very beneficial to understand the manufacturing process, learn their different major milestones that they're they're going through and what their potential challenges are. Uh, So Mm -hmm. the more it's transparent and, and obvious to all of us, I think that allows us to, to remain confident that they're continuing to do their due diligence to go live uh, when they say they're going to go live And, and something could happen. I mean, you know, you don't know. I mean, equipment can break down, things can be found, you know, but if it's done in a transparent and inclusive way, then then you feel like you're. It's not a surprise to you, right? You understand uh, as you're going through the process. So I think that's one important thing is to just keep that good rhythm going of of, of having regular meetings. As individuals, I, I think obviously the more we bring attention and awareness to this, which is a role that we can play as individual consumers. Things like this podcast, the more we can get the word out there, then I believe it becomes not a nice thing to have, but a requirement. And and it, it kind of settles in as something that's expected. 
Mm-hmm. And yeah, I think I that's think. where we've got to get to, right, Swatha? Yeah. Yeah, I think just like as Dan said, like we learn, we learn things every time we go, every time we meet them, and just like once they've done, once they've tried, how their processes is how the process has evolved since then. Yeah, so just increased transparency and increased just having the ability to scrutinize or having the ability to like learn about the process is really helpful in this regard, and also just like how help us help them keep it keep it keep it accountable. And how can people keep tabs on this and maybe get in touch with either of you if they have questions or concerns? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so people can like we will keep updates on this effort, and we will uh, make sure members know what's going on as well. If people in the community want to learn more of the effort, um, they can contact me and my colleague Clark Rockfall, who's the director of government affairs, at advocacy at acb.org that is our advocacy centered email address and we we hear from people on these on these issues and we can um provide information referral and support on this and other issues um you can also learn more about acb at acb.org or send or call the office at 202-467-5081 to talk to staff and learn more learn more what's going on and we've also made a commitment that every time we have a meeting with the Bureau of Engraving and Printing, we'll put an article in our Braille forum to provide an update there, uh, as well as uh, through our dots and dashes biweekly newsletter uh, that we send out to all our members and friends. And and I think just, again, more and more that we have the conversation and get the word out there. Uh, you know, obviously, we're sharing our progress with our partners in the disability field. And I I just think it's it's a matter of just continuing to build the awareness and the expectation. Thanks so much, guys, for having us. This was a great podcast. Thank you, Liz and Chris and Mo. And good luck with Penny Forward. And uh, we'd love to come back and have some future conversations with you and learn about other areas of accessibility when it comes to uh, financial independence. This is the Penny Forward Podcast. It is also this week a collaboration with the American Council of the Blind and their Advocacy Update Podcast. I'm Liz Botner. Hello, I am Swathananda Kumar. I am the Advocacy Art Specialist at ACB. I'm Chris Peterson. I'm Mo Carpenter. And I'm Dan Spoon, American Council of the Blind Interim Executive Director. The Penny Forward Podcast is produced by Chris Peterson and Liz Botner with assistance from Mo Carpenter. Audio editing and post-production is provided by Bryn Lee at superblink.org. Text transcription is provided by Anne Verdine, and music is both composed and performed by Andre Louis. Penny Forward is a nonprofit organization whose mission is to help blind people navigate the complicated landscape of personal finance through education, mentoring, and mutual support. We have three tiers of membership options, a guest membership at no cost, a monthly membership at $9.99 a month, and a yearly membership at $99 a year. Benefits of Penny Forward membership include access to our online courses covering a wide variety of financial-related topics, early access to the Penny Forward podcast, weekly members-only group chats, one-on-one financial counseling and coaching, and much more. 
To learn about these and other Penny Forward offerings and services, please visit our website at www.pennyforward.com. For Penny Forward, I'm Liz Botner. Thanks for listening and have a great week. Thanks for listening to the ACB Advocacy Update. You can reach us by emailing advocacy at acb.org. The ACB Advocacy Update is a production of the American Council of the Blind in Alexandria, Virginia. To learn more about ACB, visit us online at www.acb.org.